Okay, so I'm going to start by just talking about what eating, what do we mean, what do I mean by eating identity, a little bit about the study context, because it was a much larger study than just this little piece I'm presenting, um, the specific research objectives for this piece, and then the design methods, qualitative and quantitative parts, and then some conclusions and infer in implications. So I'll find a place to stand where I can see. So to begin, just thinking about, well, what is identity? One definition I pulled from Bazzoni, who was summarizing um, some of the literature, the social science literature, is that identities are self-images based on practices, attributes, reference groups, and social categories in a very broad sense. But more specifically, that all of us, we have multiple identities that we manage by assign, we manage these by assigning some greater importance, and this varies depending on context as well. Some identities may have more salience and one context versus another or different situations. And that identities can be both stable and fluid over time, depending on which attributes of an identity we're talking about. And they result in a person having both past and current. So when you're talking about identity at a given point in time, sort of a cross section, that's their identity now. It may be similar. There was a trajectory of some sort. So there may be some con consistency or continuity, but there may also have been transition points and changes over time. And finally, that people establish, monitor, and work on their identities throughout life. So what do they have to do with eating? A lot of studies have been done around identities and eating in looking at, say, gender identity, masculinity, femininity, personality traits, ethnicity and region, so a rural identity or African-American identity as an ethnic category. Um, vegetarianism, there's quite a bit on vegetarianism and <clears throat> how people develop an identity of vegetarianism. Organic food use, healthy eating in particular, do you have a healthy eating identity or everybody else? Um, some on beef eating, which I found interesting. There's quite a bit out there on beef, specifically beef, or meat eaters, but beef itself. And then some a little bit on the changes in identity, or identity crises people go through, through disease management and some of the weight, body image, and eating disorder literature. One of the limitations of a lot of these studies is they often use imposed categories sort of based on demographic variables to classify and partition people into identity using features like age, gender, ethnicity, um, and or they're very narrow in focus and only talk about, I think this is a pointer? Oh, good. They only talk about, say, one particular food like beef eating or healthy versus everyone else. So it's very unidimensional or, or you know, sort of a dichotomy, this or that. And, but folklorists or sort of in other areas of social science, anthropology, also sociology, there's been a, a long understanding that there's a, the importance of both food and symbolism in the formation of enactment of these identities. But the connections to nutrition studies are kind of weak. We don't really integrate this into our dominant way of thinking in the field of nutrition. Now, some of the inductive work that has been done in recent years to try and bring that way of thinking into nutrition, into how we approach diet change and nutrition interventions has been done by, um, oops, cut off down there. This is out of oh, Bazzoni et al., but Carol Devine, Carol Bazzoni, and others at Cornell for a while had been working on food choice in general, and they spent some time looking at identity. They developed this model just as a way of linking eating to identities. In, especially in thinking about how people develop, evaluate, and monitor in the enactment of these identities. And they've narrowed down, through their qualitative work, narrowed down, sort of dimensionalized, well, how do we even think about it? Where are the categories? Where do we even think about measuring this or, 
or describing an identity, and from their qualitative work, identi identified, <laughs> assessed, determined three different broad dimensions. One would be around eating practices, like the range, the type, the quantity. I'm a big eater. I'm a light eater. I'm a heavy eater. Um, the personal characteristics. I'm a healthy eater. I'm a very controlled eater. I'm a, these are terms people used to describe themselves in some different studies and are summarized in these dimensions. And then reference groups or so social categories, like I eat like a mom or I eat like in reference to other people. I'm normal. I'm weird. I'm a freak. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people say, I am really weird. I'm a weird, weird eater. But, and it's all in reference to other people. So why would we study eating identity? It sounds kind of big and multidimensional, and where do you even begin? Well, some of the work that, the earlier work that was done in the late 90s here suggested that eating identity is an important personal characteristic that influences food choice, and this is true across multiple populations, and that because of this, it may be useful to understand it a little more to help in tailoring and in some intervention strategies. I have a, a little more information further on to explain why it's, it might be important to look at eating identity. Oh, I will also add a recent study in using a healthy eater identity, just looking at healthy eater, just came out in 2009, um, that it, it's predictive of fr fruit and vegetable intake and lower intake of foods of low nutritional value, and if you layer in self-efficacy, you get even better predictive value. So assessing just that one kind of eating identity does help to understand and predict behavior more so than knowledge or other constructs that we typically use in nutrition studies. So this is the background. The context of this particular, this current study was the five a day and 50K program that was conducted in Lower Richland. I'll spend just a very brief amount of time talking about this because it was a pretty, pretty big project. The overall purpose of this study was to determine if a community-based intervention that includes the introduction of a fruit and vegetable stand along with the tailored nutrition education component and walking club would lead to positive changes in both health behavior and clinical outcomes of lower Richland residents. And the key here is the tailored nutrition education component. We decided last summer we wanted to tailor based on eating identity. But we had to figure out, well, how are we going to assess eating identity and put people into different groups and tailor the materials and the approach. Um, Eastover is in Lower Richland, South, Carol South Carolina, Lower Richland County, um, includes Eastover, Hopkins, and Gadsden, primarily rural, um, primarily African-American, also African-American land ownership, relatively high unemployment. I think that's much higher now. I don't think that's a current statistic. And um, pretty low education level in general, so relatively uniform population in some ways. So the objectives of this component of the study, for, to get us to the point where we could actually do something with the tailoring of messages, we wanted to first determine the dimensions and types of eating identity among this population, African Americans in this setting, to just have, to have a feel for, all right, what are the, does what we know from other populations actually apply here? Can we think about this in the same way? And to develop an instrument to assess eating identity and then assign intervention participants to these different groups for tailoring. To get to this point, we did this really in two phases. The first phase involved a quality, it was a mixed methods, I'm, I'm labeling this a mixed method sequential exploratory design. I'll lay out right up front, this is exploratory. Even the quantitative part is exploratory. 
um, using qualitative methods, data collection and analysis, and then the results from that informed the development of a tool that was then used in a quantitative collection and analysis, and then integration of the findings at the end to characterize these different identity groups. So for the qualitative component, we asked how do these participants, the people we re recruit, describe themselves and others as eaters, and specifically, what labels do they use to describe themselves, what types of eaters are represented in their descriptions, and then how do they characterize these different types? So how can we classify people and narrow it down so we can have a handle on this? We wouldn't be evaluating every aspect of their full identity, but just specifically the eating identity. So we recruited 30 adults using flyers and in-person and clinic waiting area. We wanted to recruit from the same area. We were doing all of the recruitment for the intervention through this one clinic, so we did all the recruitment for these identity interviews also from this clinic. Um, the flyers sort of worked. We had the flyers up, but <laughs> from a logistical standpoint, standing up in front of people and saying, hi, I'd like to talk to you. It only takes 10 minutes and I have a gift card. Works really, really well. <laughs> and then you'll end up with a line out the door and you'll have to be very particular about who you talk to, which is what we ended up with. We thought it would take us three weeks. It took us two days to get 30 people. Is this a, a federally qualified health center? Um, yeah, that was the one down in R Lower Richland. Oh. Um, inclusion criteria were they had to be over 35. We used the same criteria we've used in the intervention. Um, live in the study catchment area and be at risk of chronic disease, but no conditions that warrant extreme diet restrictions like dialysis or taking specific medications like Coumadin or other things that would automatically get interfered. People would have had, may have had high blood sugar or um, type 2 diabetes that was managed. Um, but, so chronic disease risk factors or chronic disease, high blood pressure. Um, we continued recruiting and interviewing until saturation, until the ideas and the identities they were talking about, the ways they presented themselves, we weren't really getting anything new. And we ended up, unfortunately, with 26 women and four men. They're just less men. There weren't very many men in the clinic. And we did get some of them, but it was harder to recruit. And because it was primarily African-American, there were, although there were two um, white participants who did, they were, lived in the local area, and that was also ended up being relatively representative of the final intervention group that we had as well, about 2% or more than 2%. <clears throat> so we conducted one 15 to 30 minute semi-structured qualitative interview, not necessarily fully in depth. It was a very um, short set of questions. We were focusing just on how do they describe themselves as eaters. Um, we did it in the health clinic office in the back. They sometimes have to sit there for an hour or more, so it was quite convenient for them to go back and take this time with us. Instead, we had two interviewers, and all the data were digitally recorded and transcribed. And this is just a, this is the actual instrument, the interview guide. One thing I'll point out about these questions, these are the exact same questions that were used in the 1999 study with um, people in upstate New York, and also it was, I think, three or four different studies. I've also used these same questions with the study of low-income rural women and with working parents, and so we, there's, a history of using these fill-in-the-blank questions and some comparisons that can be made to other populations in terms of responses. So the main thing is to first get them talking about foods, get people comfortable, found through prior interviews, qualitative interviews with food. If you just ask people what they eat, it gets them started. It's just a prompt. And then get them to say, what kind of an eater do you think you're, you are? And then all the reference. What are you not? I used to be. I could never be. I wish I wasn't. I wish I could be. And then to compare themselves um, just who knows the most about the way you eat and what would they say? 
And then um, how do you compare to other people? And this final one didn't work so well in this group, the television question. We asked them, we've tried it before with a book. If you're dealing with a more educated population, if you say, if there were a book describing your eating style, what would it be? You can get some really interesting responses. Um, but we did have a few people answer, but most stumbled over this question. They couldn't come up with a, they, in fact, it, they found it kind of distressing. I don't know, I, I don't know an answer to this question. Uh-huh. We tried to avoid giving examples so that we didn't lead them. But just, we said you can use a single word, a phrase, a sentence, however you want to describe it. So if you had to answer, um, what kind, can you tell me what kind of an eater you think you are? I am a blank eater. And what would you answer? Uh, I'd answer, I'm a fairly healthy eater. I'm a, and they, they, people usually didn't give just one answer. They'd say, I'm fairly healthy. I'm, I'm a junk food eater. I have some, let me show you some examples. Um, the next slide has a bunch of the examples people gave. We reviewed each of the interviews. We used open and thematic coding. We were specifically looking for labels, so we already had an idea of what we were coding. We just wanted to pull out all the labels and then the descriptions they gave for each of those. And we also wanted to classify by identity and then figure out, well, what are the characteristics of these different people that we could then use to develop some survey instruments. And interpretation, oh, so we did intercoder comparisons. Um, two, there were two different coders, two interviewers, and then a separate coder also to double check that the interpretations were accurate. Oops, a little bit of a problem there with that. So this is an example of the labels. I think, actually, this might be, this is almost all of them. I think I got all of them. I tried to pull from the lists that we had. So these were the things people said, I'm a light eater, fairly good, okay, off and on, good healthy, semi-healthy, exotic, quick, meat, particular, on, on junk food, heavy, overindulgent, greedy eater. And then they would go on and describe what they meant by each of these things. So we took all the labels and their descriptions and tried to parse down into the categories and came up with what we figured were, were six different areas that people, we could fit people into these six categories in this qualitative sample. They were the healthy eaters, picky eaters, meat eaters, unhealthy junk food eaters, emotional heavy eaters, and content light eaters. And a couple quotes just go along with each of these. The health, there were a good chunk of healthy eaters. I am a healthy eater now. I eat good and healthy. I'm very good. I got no health problems. I'm a semi-healthy eater. And then the person qualified with I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. I limit my sweets. I don't eat a lot of pork meat. Um, I don't eat a lot of beef. I don't use alcohol except sporadically. And one note, almost everyone at some point mentioned something about somebody being a healthy eater. They weren't a healthy eater, they wanted someone else, somebody else was a healthy eater, or they wanted to be a healthy eater, or I could never be a healthy eater. So that category, that healthy eater identity, or what, that mean, what it means may vary a little bit between people, but that was pretty salient, common, common, common term. Um, I'll also point out all of the, the to me what was interesting, was I here I was in this lower Richland, it's an environment I haven't worked in before, low income, rural African American population. I expected something different than what I had seen in my low income upstate New York rural white women or the, even the urban people we had interviewed. But these were the same kinds of words people used there as here. And some of the other studies that I've referenced in here like Bazzoni and Divine, they had the same categories as well. And even pulling from the literature, I found an article last night 
from the Folklorist Society. It's a really great article on food identity, and it was a full review. And same categories, picky eaters, meat eaters, healthy eaters. First, in the US, at least, people tend to use these categories within their groups. Mm -hmm. How come you um, make the link between emotional and heavy? It seems like those could be two distinct categories. I'm going to show you. I'm qualifying it, because there's some different kinds of emo emotional they didn't use. I'm putting it in there. They used heavy and some other terms. Emotional heavy versus the emotional, I don't eat because I'm stressed and nervous, which was a little bit of a different construct. So I, I put the heavy in there to qualify it. Do you have any uh, idea on how uh, media or other entities have shaped this kind of terminology or identity that people would pick up these phrases? Yeah, that's a good question. There is probably, must be some influence, but I, don't, I haven't really thought about that very much. No, I haven't, I haven't seen too much on that in terms of these particular categories. <clears throat> the, let's see, well, I'll jump, I'll show you another. So the picky eaters, yeah, this was, this comes up again and again in a lot of different studies. I'm a picky eater. I wish I could eat a lot more variety than I used to, but I'm picky eater, really. I'm very picky. <laughs> I am too much of a picky eater. And then they say others would say, I'm a picky eater. That was the, in response to the question about what would others call you. Always been like this, always haven't changed much. I've thought about changing so many times, but I thought, oh, I better stay like I am. <laughs> it's only certain parts of meat that I eat, only certain vegetables that I'll eat. I am rather picky, though. I'm a very picky eater. I'm very particular about the food I eat. I don't like to fool with a whole lot of that, you know, that fat in it. So there were different, you know, like kinds of picky eating, but if someone said, I'm a picky eater, it usually followed some sort of restriction or especially this strong resistance to wanting other people to tell them what to eat. Like, leave me alone, I eat this way. And uh, you know, common, I, I had a, one of the papers I published in 2003 on these rural women, um, this picky eater category, they were really different. And they would even do things like not eat at other people's houses or in front of other people, just so they didn't have to deal with comments. Or they didn't, want to, they didn't know what was in the food, or they just, it's not what I eat. I'll go home, I'll eat in my kitchen, I'm not eating what they make. And then the meat eaters, also there's lots of papers out there. Meat, men, meat, and masculinity is an interesting paper, and then some on beef eating. Um, I'm a meat eater, not big on bread. I guess that's just the way I grew up. I'm a meat eater. I like meat with every meal. If there's not meat, it's actually not a meal to me, and I wouldn't like being a vegetarian. And then somebody who said what they could, they couldn't be this. I could never be an overeater or a big meat eater or an alcohol user. Talking about different categories, they wouldn't be. And then the unhealthy junk food eaters, um, I'm a junk, th these were self-described junk food eaters. I'm a junk food eater and here's what I like and why and um, I wish I, and they also equate that with unhealthy. I wish I wasn't an unhealthy eater. My husband would call me unhealthy. So a recognition that it was unhealthy but still it's who I am, it's what I eat. And then the emotional heavy eaters, and I have a lot of quotes here because this category was it's very specific to like emotional overeating heavy eaters. There's other kinds of emotional eating, but this is a particular category. These are the, I'm a heavy eater, heavy greedy eater, overindulging, I love food, I have a passion for food, splurge eater, anything that's there, I eat, eat what's available that's close and convenient, I'm not a healthy eater. Um, I wish I wasn't a heavy eater, I'm a bored eater. When I'm sitting around and there's nothing to do, that's when I usually think, hmm, I'm gonna go see what we got in the refrigerator. It's a comfort for me, just something to take my mind off what it is I'm depressed about or what's really going on, and that's really all it is because normally what I do is food of no nutritional value. 
And normal eating is eating crazy. I'm a heavy eater. Oh God, eating crazy, eating like I'm crazy, everything I see. <laughs> so this particular group, we had to distinct, in, in classifying them, other people mentioned eating when they're sad or a little bit, but these were distinctly, they were eating out of emotion, stress, depression, and it was overeating, it wasn't undereating. Because the undereating is a different issue, or a diff, sort of a different way of responding. But as other heavy eaters, you wouldn't necessarily classify as being emotional mm -hmm. eaters? Yeah, it, some other people use the term heavy eater, but they were like, I'm a meat eater, I eat kind of heavy, but I'm a meat eater. And so we tried to pick the dominant, in characterizing them, try to pick the cluster of elements that went into being that particular kind of eater, which was the dominant. It was a little bit tricky, and it's not perfect. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive, like they're perfectly different than everyone else, and people did overlap, but we, we, did, we were able to, for the most of the people, in terms of the intercoder um, rating, I didn't assess it quantitatively, but I think there were only three out of the 30 that we weren't sure where to put. We agreed pretty well that, wow, that is a picky eater, and that is a meat eater, but then a few could have negotiated, the three that we didn't know, and then a couple to negotiate. And then the content light eaters. I, eat, I pretty much eat just to satisfy my hunger, eat in moderation. I don't eat to stuff, I eat to satisfy my hunger. I'm not a person who eats to satisfy stress or anger. I'm not a picky eater. Really, I'm a light eater. I mean, I get the typical three meals a day and snack, yeah. I think I eat pretty good, but just like overall, I think I could do better. I think I'm an okay eater, and I'm a fairly good eater. Uh, to tell you the truth, these were the people I wouldn't expect to see showing up in an intervention. <laughs> They just were like, yeah, whatever, I eat, I eat okay, nothing really, food's not a big deal, I just eat. So there weren't a lot of them. <laughs> so in summary, we, we identified or we, we noticed six eating identity types and we took the eating identity, oh, these eating identity types and labels were consistent with other studies in other populations. Um, and the findings provide guidance, these findings provided guidance on the development of some questions questionnaire items to differentiate eating identity types. So what we did is we then took those, each of those types and to, and developed some sets of specific questions like, and I actually adapted this from the literature and from our findings. There's uh, Kenzerski, who's a psychologist, has developed what's called an eating, healthy eating schema questionnaire. It's three questions, it's basically eating identity. It's the same thing we ask. I am a healthy eater, and then on a scale of one to 11, whether you agree or not, um, I'm a careful eater, I'm a nutritious eater. So I took her three questions, and then also ad we adapted some others from, um, like I'm a picky eater, and then some elements of picky eating, and put together this instrument that had, I think I have it next here. So a 26 eating identity questionnaire items. You don't have to read all of them, but they were all representative of the different kinds of eaters people said they were and we asked people to rate themselves on a scale of one to 11 on how well this represented them. <clears throat> I used the one to 11 scale only because Kinzerski also used that, so I wanted to match her scaling, which didn't work, Angela, because <laughs> we used it somewhere else, it didn't work so well, so now it's cut down to five, but that's telling you the end. Um, so this, the, the overarching research question for this piece was, does the eating identity questionnaire differentiate between types of eating identity? And if yes, which questions best differentiate? So it's really kind of reducing some of the questions, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, or does it work at all first? Um, we did a cross-sectional assessment of eating identity among participants enrolled in the five-a-day and 50K program, so at baseline. Um, we used this 26 items, and oops, I'll go back. 
we use the preliminary results. So the results from this questionnaire, the 26 items, we use to um, assign the people in the intervention group to the tailored nutrition intervention sections. So it was somewhat exploratory. We already had the people recruited, they were randomized, and then within the randomization group, the intervention group, we decided what kinds of, we determined what kinds of identities were there and then assigned them. Um, there were a total of 186 people, 93 were randomized to the intervention. They were mostly female, just by, they, that's who agreed to participate. Um, average age was 51 with a range of 35 to 67. They all had at least one chronic disease risk factor, and as I mentioned before, without conditions that would have impaired their ability to change their diet. Although there were lots of interesting, interesting issues that went on. This, I'll, I'll also add, this was a community-driven project. So we, the community groups were really involved in every aspect, even recruitment and who we included. So we did run into some um, conflict between what we would want to do in a rigorous randomized, randomized trial versus what they felt was ethically okay in their community. So we had a few people that got included that ideally we may have to not use them in our analysis. Um, in terms of BMI, as you might expect, the majority were, I don't have the actual numbers here, this is the percents, but the majority were in the overweight obese category. We had some underweight because um, they could be in if they have high blood pressure or have some other chronic disease risk factors. So we had a small percent of our sample who were healthy weight and then just a couple underweight. And the data analysis was exploratory using hierarchical cluster analysis of the eating identity questions and then comparison of means using ANOVA and interpretation of clusters using insights from qualitative data. So the hierarchical, I think I have a thing here, the hierarchical cluster analysis, what it, it does is it, for those of you who may not know, it takes and it groups people based on their responses across all those items. So it compares to see who answered most closely across all 26 items and identifies all the different combinations. And it's hierarchical in that once you're assigned to a group, you can't, you don't end up, doesn't end up putting you somewhere else. So it just, it's a way of exploring the data to see who's most similar, but it doesn't give you any output. You can't tell, well, why are they in this group? So one way to figure out how they're in this group is to then take the cluster assignment and use that as a variable and analyze, compare the means for the responses to each of the items. So doing a basic um, analysis of variance or comparing means, I think. Yeah, examined um, differences in mean responses to each of the identity items for three, a cluster solution from three clusters to 10 clusters. So taking each piece, so comparing group one, two, and three for response to I am a picky eater. Is there a significant difference? Who's highest, who's lowest, where do they fit? Um, and then the best solution, there's really no clear, clear guidelines how to do it. So the best solution um, because to, that I identified or we identified was by looking at the proportion of questionnaire items that were significantly different between the clusters, um, interpretability of the cluster membership, did it make sense? Going, you know, just logic, does it make sense that we cut the clustering off at five or four or six? Um, even approximately even distribution, this was for practical purposes, so looking for a cluster solution that gave us um, a sample, a, a group size that we could then put into a intervention for nutrition education, and we ended up identifying five clusters. And they were, <coughs> health, oops, I think I have a, yep, healthy eaters, emotional overeaters, instead of heavy, I, we ended up referring to it as overeaters, I should probably changed the other one to that too. 
um, picky eaters, unhealthy eaters, and I have to qualify this group in a minute, and then the meat eaters. So luckily, we were actually pretty pleased with this that it, it looked somewhat like what we would have expected based on our qualitative findings and that you, we could differentiate between the groups. Um, let's see, so we could differentiate between the groups looking for significant differences in mean responses. So, for example, picky eaters scored significantly higher on items that said, I'm a picky eater, I, I don't like to try new foods. We actually scaled them backwards. So we said, I like to try new foods. They scored way low on that compared to other people. Or um, I like to eat a lot of different things. We had a few items in there. I, can, I can't show you the next. And after looking at these more closely, recently especially, I ended up narrowing it down to the 12 items that really differentiate most clearly, that seem to have the, I don't want to say predictive, they, at least they're most significant and they stand out as being specifically higher or lower in each of these identity groups. And those were the healthy eaters. Those three questions of Kinzerski's worked pretty well in this population. She has only used them in um, college student populations. So this is the first time I'm aware of they've been used outside of that. Um, the emotional eaters, asking somebody if they're an emotional eater doesn't work. <laughs> they don't really respond and in fact we had a, was it 30% of the sample didn't, didn't fill it in. They actually left it blank. So we, I just left that one out. Yeah, some of them people didn't want to answer. Hmm? Denial. Denial or maybe <laughs> discomfort. Well, yeah, discomfort with saying I'm an emotional eater. But they did answer. These items hold together really well. I'm someone who eats more when I'm stressed. I'm someone who eats more when I'm sad or depressed. And I'm an overeater. And those, those correspond <coughs> to each other. Um, and then the meat eater questions. I'm a meat eater. I'm someone who likes meat with every meal. And I'm a junk food eater. Consistently over and over again, those go together. <laughs> and um, ask about the, ve the vegetarian question. We had a vegetarianism question that didn't discriminate as well as some of the others. And then picky eaters, I'm a picky eater. I'm someone who likes to eat a lot of different things and I'm someone who likes to try new foods. Now, the one thing here that I'm still trying to figure out what to do with is the unhealthy eaters in cluster analysis, remember it goes by um, similarity in terms of responses across all the items. Well, the unhealthy eaters, what really differentiated them was their neutral response to a lot of items. So they tended to answer that they're unhealthy and sort of in the middle on the healthy and the unhealthy, but they were, I would interpret this from some of the qualitative stuff is some of these are probably more the content or not really care about food kind of people. Because sometimes you get, in some of the studies, you get people who, you know, the, uh, we had a question in there was, are you an eat to live or live to eat person? Or I'm an eat to, I eat to live. It didn't work very well as a survey item, but we, you can look in the literature and find that there are, groups of people who really don't care about food. It's just not salient to them. They eat what's there and that's it. And so that's my interpretation is that some of this is just it's not on their radar screen. So in summary of those results, we ended up with five clusters representing um, the eating identity types. Twelve of the items were most useful in differentiating between the different, these particular groups. And then to actually tailor the intervention, we had to go a step further. We couldn't just assign the groups and say, there you go, tailor, tailor to what? So we integrated the findings at this point and drew on some of the qualitative work and looking at the clusters and how they responded to all the questions to create these little, these are quotes actually, little vin vignettes that we gave to the um, intervention leaders to give them some clue about 
what they need, and then in developing our tailoring to get some clue into what kinds of messages we want to include, how we want to frame different issues like eating fruits and vegetables or whatever it might be. So the healthy eaters, we said, saw themselves as people who are not picky, they don't mind trying new food, they don't, eat, they don't need meat at every meal, willing to consider vegetarianism and don't tend to overeat or have issues with emotional eating. Um, they eat regular meals, they don't eat all day, and they've not made changes to their diet to lose weight. So they're just they're healthy eaters. <laughs> um, emotional overeaters are eat more and not less when stressed or sad. We had two items in the um, original questionnaire out of the 26 that said I eat less when I'm stressed or sad, I eat less when I'm um, or sad or depressed, stressed or anxious, I think were the terms. And it's interesting, the picky eaters and the healthy eaters are more likely to respond to the eat less when stressed. But it wasn't, it didn't differentiate, it showed up in a couple of different groups, so that's why I suggested pulling them. Um, and these people have been told they need to change their eating habits because of a health problem. A lot of them talk about that. And then the picky eaters don't like to try new foods or eat a lot of different foods. They see themselves as, um, however, some see themselves as healthy. They made changes for health reasons, but they tend to eat less when sad or stressed, I mentioned. Um, and then the unhealthy eaters, some talked about eating less when sad or stressed in this particular group. Um, and they've not been told to make changes, at least they report they've not been told to make changes to their eating. Um, they're not picky, but they tend to not eat a lot during the day. They just sort of eat when it's there. And then the meat eaters like to have meat with every meal, see themselves as junk food eaters, which I still am trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, don't like to, they don't like to be told what to eat, and this came out pretty prominently in both the qualitative and one of the some of the responses in the questionnaire, and they describe themselves as picky, who could never be vegetarian, but picky only in terms of that, um, and who've not made changes in their diets for health reasons. So as long as there's meat, they're not picky, but if you start giving me that vegetarian stuff, I don't want, I, I went to school with a guy who described himself as a meat eater, and he, I was in nutrition classes with him, and his favorite saying was, lettuce is what food eats. <laughs> so he wouldn't eat any lettuce or anything green. <laughs> and he, he always stands out when I think of the meat eaters. Um, so in conclusion, the eating identity questionnaire allowed for differentiation of some different eating identities that correspond to our qualitative findings, especially for these stronger eating identities or the more salient, like the emotional heavy or the picky meat eaters and healthy eaters. Those four stand out, but there's still that other group that we're labeling as unhealthy, but I think there's probably more differentiation within that group as well. Um, and the salience of food and identity is evident in high number with uh, oh, the neutral responses of the unhealthy group. Um, I, I personally think it's because for some people, they're just going to respond neutral to anything to do with food because it's not something they think about a lot. It's not necessarily, if you think about overall identity and how we have multiple identities, maybe eating for them isn't one of the higher priority or higher level <coughs> aspects they think about when they describe themselves. Um, some of the strengths of this, I think the strengths were the triangulation with the data collection, the interviews, the coders, using multiple coders to try to get multiple interpretations of the different, um, especially the qualitative. We were down there for a long time. The interviews were last July. We just finished up in February. We're there every week, some days for long chunks of time, all different kinds of reasons. So we got a lot of exposure um, to the eating environment and the people. Um, it, oh, I should add, the interviewer administered questionnaire enhanced comprehension. 
So we were worried about whether people could understand those 26 items. So they were actually read to the participants and then they filled them out on their own in small groups. I think were they groups of anywhere two to four, and did? One to four or five, okay. There were no more than four or five people, so they could ask questions if they were confused and take their time. Um, and this is an understudy population in terms of eating identity in this sense, so that was a strength. Some limitations, it was a small qualitative sample size, difficulty recruiting men. I would have liked to see a lot more men in our sample. If I do this again, I have some, I need to get, I have some other ideas about recruitment. Learned in other studies, you have to send a man into a garage and you can recruit a lot of guys that way. I did, we did that in Ithaca with my husband. We hired him for the summer and we sent him into garages and he would recruit a lot of men. <laughs> um, exploratory, the exploratory design, we can't really, can't really test hypotheses or say, you know, if this is, it, it's harder to make some claims about relationships. Um, it, because we're imposing, you know, we took the questions from the qualitative data and asked them, there could be other identities there that we didn't measure because I didn't ask the question, um, and limited generalizability. Um, but some of the implications, I think it's important to consider the influence of eating identity in studies of dietary behavior and intake, um, move beyond classification of healthy versus everyone else. Because Kanzerski's demonstrated really nicely that healthy people respond to um, cafeteria signs that if you put a cafeteria sign that this item is healthy, the self-identified healthy eaters will pick that. Everyone else is going to ignore it. Um, that uh, She's done a really nice job of that, but then everyone else is usually half or more of the sample, unless she specifically matches unhealthy to healthy. But they're usually not unhealthy, they're just, they're not healthy, they're something else. Um, so similarities in the types of eating identities to prior studies suggest feasibility of a standardized instrument, something that could be used. The, actual way that picky eating is expressed in different cultures or different groups may be different in terms of food choices, but the identity as a picky eater may have some sort of not, I don't want to say universal, I hesitate to say universal, but maybe more generalizable um, <coughs> applications. An assessment of eating identity may be a useful construct to inform message and intervention tailoring. And anecdotally, we can say, Sonia can probably add to this, when we split these people into the five different groups, it was kind of scary just how well it worked in, in the, the, so we did five different groups all at the same time, 93 people, and so we had two facilitators per group leading the nutrition education piece, and they were coming back afterward, the meat eater people came back and said, they kept asking us, where's the meat? When we handed out the vegetable samples, we're talking about examples of what fruits and vegetables go good together, and they're like, that would go good with a steak. <laughs> like a lot of the conversation and the, the emotional eaters, even visibly, you could see there was, they were, I, we gotta check the BMIs on this, but I think they were much larger. They were all women. Um, the healthy eater, Sonia led the healthy eater group. Would you like to say anything about them? So the healthy eater group cheered the whole time. They did, they were cheering. <laughs> I think our retention was probably close to 100% with that group over the eight weeks. The picky eaters were complaining that they didn't have the right kinds of combinations from the first night. We didn't have the right crackers to go with the dips. We didn't have, they wouldn't eat, they wanted saltines. And yeah, we, and the, I had the, I worked with the unhealthy eaters and 
I still think there's differentiation because the group I had were a mishmash. I, they, half of them didn't even know why they were there. They were like, they, I'm here because my wife made me. I, well, a couple of them wanted to be there, but they were much less engaged. They hadn't really done a lot of thinking about changing diet, so they were just, I'm just here. You have a voucher for me. <laughs> um, so anecdotally, there were clearly differences between the groups. And our, when we get the final data, and we can look at retention rate too. I have a feeling we lost most of the people from the picky and the emotional eaters, because by the end, they were the smallest groups. We started with about the same size in every group. And the healthy eaters, cheering, making all sorts of noise, all 20 of them were still there, or 18, or however many it was. Um, which suggests that that makes sense, right? They're healthy eaters, this is about healthy eating. It fits their identity. They're they're there, they're gonna be receptive. If we hadn't used identity, we sort of would have lumped everyone into the same category and said these are all low income, primarily, they're all low income rural, primarily African American population with chronic disease risk factors. They should all respond relatively similar. Maybe knowledge would change their um, ability to respond, but I think identity is well, probably more telling. <coughs> Oh, the, they were, and even the people who didn't think of themselves as healthy, they use the word healthy to say what they're not or what someone else is. So they are using the word healthy. And a lot of people had a really clear idea of what healthy meant. And they could tell you, not everyone was correct, but they could tell you, you know, low fat, fruits and vegetables. Um, what else have I gotten here? I don't remember. Oh, next step. So now what I'm doing now is looking at analyzing post-intervention data to assess reliability. However, what, the way I'm thinking of doing this is we have a control group, too, that we collected the same data on. And sort of this idea, our identity is changeable. Did our intervention do anything to shift anyone's identity? Um, so I can't really assess reliability of the instrument in the intervention group in that way. So I use the control group to assess the, um, some reliability. Um, also want to look at assess differences in dietary intake and other measures pre and post because we do have quite a bit of data, clinical data, it's not entered yet, and dietary intake data and some other measures. And then the next is to look at establishing some reliability and validity and Angela has very kindly allowed me to put the 12 items into a survey that she just had out on eating environments or sort of perception of eating environments and access. And so that's been administered with a larger sample so I can look at some of these issues to see if the same um, category, see if the items discriminate as well. And then thinking, now thinking about how to develop some tests of validity or tests with other populations. So I'm not there, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> you talk about reliability, the way that you're talking about it makes me think you're test retest. test retest. I am, de test retest, retest reliability. And, and so ah, I'm wondering about the total yeah. consistency yep. reliability they were actually pretty high. Each of those, they were at least, I think they were all at least 0.7, maybe 0.69. Some were in the point, the healthy eater one was in the 0.8 range. So, you know, moderately high. You they should use, be above 0.7, I think. So to you can be. use that, too, to see whether people are changing their interventions over time within the intervention group. Hmm. That would be thinking. Just test, retest. I'm going to have to talk to you to ask how, might, how to do that. I was also thinking of doing, with this next sample, the larger random sample, maybe using some confirmatory factor analysis. I've done a little bit, but I don't totally know, I don't totally understand it, but taking each of the items and see if they load together to confirm, and, and to look also at the intercorrelations between some of the items, because I know some will be intercorrelated.
So all of the elements that are also going to influence food choice. Yeah, those are all elements, and food identity would be one. And you could think about it in terms of interaction. I don't know if it's the right word, but a food identity along with a definition of healthy eating. You may identify as healthy eater, but then what is your conception of healthy eating? And does that match? And where I would think for, as a practitioner, I'm a former practitioner, so I always think first about well, how would I counsel somebody, and then about how would I uh, do something more at a population level, message level. But if you have a healthy eater who's got a misconception about what's healthy, that's easier to address than, say, a picky eater who has a misconception because you would theoretically think that they would be more receptive to a message designed, framed around health. Do you know what I mean? Like clarifying what is, a, what is healthy eating because it fits with their identity. Mm. You know, it's pretty different. I mean, if you do cook, then you have a sense of agency in what you can prepare. But if you never cook, you cook, you eat whatever's there, and you don't do the shopping either. Then I think that would be a major factor in what they actually consider. Can I try to ask some questions about gluten-free definitions? Because I'm curious about exactly this. And the question didn't work so well. It was hard for them to think about more and who would they eventually know. But in Anecdotally, in the actual intervention groups, some of the men showed up with their wives for several of the sessions, so it was very clear that she was going to be the one making sure she better be <laughs> And then, um, and then, I know I had at least one person in the healthy eater group who said her daughter prepared everything for her, so she, the way she talked about being part of the group was, I just take this back to her and I tell her that this is where you need salads to go, and she can go down to the store and pick up our fruits and vegetables because I need some salads. I think you make an important point, too, in thinking eating identity doesn't equal the dietary intake mm -hmm. by itself. There's a lot of other factors, access and availability, skills, knowledge does come into play, self-efficacy, so the skills and self-efficacy together, and some other sort of individual level, but then environmental level and access level issues. All of those come into play to dictate how a, what a person chooses to eat and then what they actually consume. But this is one element that may help us differentiate in especially if you're thinking about interventions or tailoring messages to people. This is one sort of individual or shared, I guess not individual, it's a shared construct across a set of individuals. Thank you. 
At least healthy eaters. Yeah. And thinking of, and some of it is to look at and see, well, or think about, well, what are, if we have a set of picky eaters, we know with kids, interventions are tailored in terms of picky eating or food neophobia or uh, kids who clearly don't like to try new food. So you tailor an intervention for that particular eating problem, <laughs> you would call it if it's kids, but we don't often think about tailoring our nutrition interventions for picky eaters. Emotional eaters we do, especially with the overweight, like weight loss interventions, but not picky or what about meat eaters? How do you, how do you fit a nutrition message around meat eating if that person is clearly not going to change their identity from a meat eater. You're not going to turn that meat eater into a vegetarian, at least in the short term. So you have to tailor your messages around meat eating. The meat industry knows this really well. <laughs> or maybe they've helped to build that up too. This is McDonald's? McDonald's. So it, it, it just seemed like what is healthy deserves more investigation because I think that it's What do people think of as healthy? Well, one, of the, one of the student groups in my qualitative methods class, just inter, that, that was their topic. They chose to focus on healthy eating definitions among college students at USC, and they got quite a range of responses. Did you have a question? I'm talking about testing with other populations and assessments that they might be doing to you know, get additional folks. Uh, so are you confident enough to, to take those 12 questions and, and uh, you know, apply them to a, a group of men, although you didn't have a whole lot in your qualitative uh, sample? Yeah, I think so. so I mean, those 12 items, because those 12 items weren't just from, they, they were from our qualitative work, but some of those are based on some of the literature too that, have, that has included okay. studies so with men. I didn't know if you feel like with some populations you have to start from scratch or yeah. if you're ready to just take what you have and, you know. I, that, I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm supposed to be writing something to figure out. That's my next step is to be writing up what, where to take this and what needs to be done. So many of us are doing things and movement studies and there's an opportunity to slip them in. I'm sure yeah. I just wonder your, your comfort level those 12 items I feel pretty good about. I feel pretty good about those four identities. I guess where I don't feel, the, the, that other area is, should we parse out more? I, I'm, I like to parse things down and reorganize a lot. But the, I, I feel pretty strongly about the healthy eating, picky, um, heavy, sort of emotional heavy, and meat eaters. Those four categories, I think, do help to differentiate a good chunk of the of at least this population, and I, I expect other populations as well, but I think you're always gonna have this other group that doesn't fit neatly into them for various reasons. So yeah, I would feel confident. I guess my, my inclination is to wanna do more qualitative because that's what I like to do. I'd expect to see more meat eaters. Right. 
really, in the, within the confirmatory factor analysis. I think we did, I, uh, I'll talk to you later about the details of that. Yeah. But everybody else's outcomes get worse when the high school kids aren't integrated We thought about this was a conversation. Well we debated about this. We were like, well should we then take the identities and have groups that contain a couple of each of them or do we want to separate them? Yeah, we went back and forth. We ended up at the end saying let's try them in their just you know, their own groups because then we can tailor it e more specifically instead of having to give four different kinds of messages around one topic and hope and, and this is another thing oh the, well that quote doesn't show it the Jones article I really he made a really good point about thinking about compliance versus and adherence and the value judgments we make is it, is it really the goal to say we're gonna make all you other people healthy eaters I mean, is that, I, I, and some arguments are, so should the picky eaters now have to become healthy eaters, and is that our measure of success in our intervention, that we've changed them now, they're healthy eaters? Or is it that we help the picky eaters, who are still picky eaters, just make some better choices within their comfort zones? Or the meat eaters make better choices within their comfort zones? And that was I, the logic underlying our decision to put them in their own groups for that, but. And they may never end up being like the healthy eaters, where they love to be adventurous and try new things and eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And they may choose to stick with carrots and cucumbers, and that's it. <laughs> Not that that's the best choice. Yeah, even the healthy eaters. I would not call the healthy eaters if I saw looking at what they were eating. I would not personally, from the outside, call them healthy. They just call themselves they healthy. They self-identify as healthy, but their food choices. If you were an expert coming in and assessing them, maybe relative to the rest of the group, but not. Aspirational identity, <laughs> or, or referent, group referent. Things would be to look at the dietary intake, and the, not yeah. only from the total caloric intake, but you know nutrients and other things, and just see if there's any differences between at least these identities. Yeah. And you might yep. not see that much difference, which would be actually even interesting in and of itself. This is a group that has a blood sugar, blood sugar oh, fasting gosh. blood sugar that ranges from 40 to 
Yeah. yeah, their clinical oh. measures were pretty scary. <laughs> their blood pressure. Yeah, it wasn't the average. The average was well above where it should have been, too. Right, the average was over 200. Yeah. And most of the, the majority were really obese or overweight. I mean, you saw on that chart. So that was the norm in the community, though. So the healthy eaters, I think it was somewhat a self-referent identity. I'm healthy. Look at everyone else. <laughs> and I, in terms of like the ethics, I, I think that's a really important issue. And if you do use tailoring like this, is being aware of whether you're setting the standards too low. So you should still have that standard, but meet people where they are and bring them as far as you can, but still have you know, the ideal that they would get to a point where they're eating really healthy. This is just about the end. I have one really long quote. They didn't, oh, oh, this, oh the acknowledgments. Oh, yeah, I should have the acknowledgments up there. The five a day and 50K planning team, um, a bunch of us in here. I, I gotta add uh, Katie McInnes, who was the other interviewer, and Brooke Harmon, I think I put her in. Brooke Harmon's not on here. Oh, there's Brooke, who did a lot of the coding, and Kathleen, who pulled a whole bunch of references for me this week and for some other things. And then our collab, there were collaborative partners. This was for the overall project, not directly related to the eating identity piece. And then just because I, I never like to think about things in really narrow terms, this eating identity questionnaire of 12 items is really just getting one sliver of someone's identity. And I like this quote from Michael Owens of the Folklorist Society, where he said um, he was comparing uh, studying eating identity or any identity to an onion that there's layer upon layer, and it depends on your referent point. So to a foreigner, a Yankee is an American. To an American, a Yankee is a Northerner. To a Northerner, a Yankee is a New Englander. Mm -hmm. To a New Englander, a Yankee is a Vermonter. <laughs> to a Vermonter, a Yankee is a person who eats apple pie for breakfast. And like an onion, identity is a complex, many-layered thing, and food choice and meanings are influenced by numerous factors, including culture. And in addition, while ethnic identity often has, been a bear, has a bearing on symbols and consumption patterns, it exists in conjunction with other identities, some of which predominate in one or another context. And uh, a promising re research direction in folklorists and nutrition studies then is the exploration, exploring a wide variety of identities in relation to food choice and symbolism. So my thinking's still there even when I'm parsing down to these 12 little questions that might be, allow us to compare across a lot of different people. But there's a lot more to identity than just whether you're a meat eater. So. <coughs> I already have.